Well, a few years ago, Courtney called me and she said, hey, I've got this really good opportunity through work. She said, through our current employer insurance plan, we can get you an Apple Watch for basically free. And I said, do it. Pull the trigger. Let's get one. So I got the Apple Watch. And I don't know, any, anybody else have an Apple Watch in the room? A couple of you guys, if you have uh, an Apple Watch, you know it can do everything. Right? You can set your alarm. It tells you how many steps you've taken. It tells you how fast your heart is rating. Your heart is beating. I should probably check real quick. Too much caffeine. It'll tell you all kinds of things. It'll, it'll tell you when you need to be where you need to be. It'll let you play music. It'll do all kinds of things. And so I fell in love with it. I never took it off. But there was a, one day that I, that I took it off for whatever reason, and I left it sitting down. And by the time I got back there, it was gone. And I was, as you can imagine, I was pretty bummed, and it felt really strange not having a watch on. Now, thankfully, I had some reward points from an old credit card I was able to spend and get a new one. Of course, I upgraded, right, as you, as you should. But any of you that wear watches know if you take your watch off or you lose your watch, you just feel like a part of you is missing. Anybody, anybody feel that way? How do you guys tell time? Anybody tell time on your watch, a few of you here? How many of you use your phone to tell time? What happens when your phone is dead? You just feel lost, right? You have no idea. You, feel, you don't know if you're spending your time well or you're wasting your time. And I think we realize that time is a precious commodity. It, the, the, the more that we kind of cycle through life, we realize that we can't make more time. The time isn't something that we can create. We can spend time or we can waste time. And so one of the questions I want us to ask today is, how are we spending our time? Are we spending our time well, or are we wasting our time? You know, there's 168 hours in the week. And so I'm going to go old school here and do a little whiteboard lesson. You guys in the back might not be able to see it. Let me bring it up a little closer. But I want you guys to think about, there's 168 hours in the week. So let's think about how we spend that 168 hours. You guys are going to realize quickly my handwriting is not very good. 168 hours in a week. But how do we spend our time? Well, I have to think of, of your time as in three buckets. You have 168 hours a week, but there's three buckets that you're spending your time in. What's the first one? Somebody, let's do a little audience participation. What's the first one? Sleep. Sleep is the first bucket. Now, doctors... And psychologists say that we should sleep somewhere between seven and nine hours a night. So we're going to go in the middle and go with the good old eight. Now, let me ask you, show of hands, moment of honesty. Church is a place we can be honest, right? How many of you sleep eight hours a night? Man, you guys are pretty good. This side of the room is really healthy. This side of the room, you guys got some work to do. How many of you guys are seven hours a night? Okay, a lot of you. I'm more of like that. I'm, I'm a seven, maybe a six. How many six? Some six. How many five? A couple five. How, how, four? Are we going to really get honest here? How many fours? Somebody go get them coffee. Seriously. <laughs> Run out to the lobby and get some coffee. But we, we realize that we need sleep to recharge. Now, let's say that we can all be as good as this side of the room, and we can sleep eight hours a night. Let's do some quick math. Eight times seven. What is that? 56. Okay, 56 hours of our week spent sleeping, recharging, refreshing, Cycling through crazy dreams, all of those kind of things, right? Now, what is the second category, the second bucket that we spend our time on outside of sleep? 
Work, work. Okay, so let's think about work. Now, if you think about work, what is the average work week? We say about 40 hours a week, right? Now, it can give and take. Some of you may be stay-at-home moms right now, and so you're working 1,000 hours a week. You're working 168 hours a week, right? Some of you may be in a different stage of life where you're working part-time in retirement or something like that. But let's use 40 for our example today. Now, we're going to use 40 hours a week. But here's the question. How many of you really work 40 hours a week? We got to count in drive time, right? We got to count in lunch time. We got to count in getting ready in the morning. Now, another moment of honesty. How, wives, how many of your husbands take longer to get ready than you do? Courtney's like, what is taking you so long? And I'm always thinking, well, I got to do my hair, obviously. <laughs> Right? i got to look good if we're going out. So 40 hours a week, let's just bump this up. Let's call it a little bit. Let's add another 16 hours to this. So we're going to say that we work 56 hours a week, counting drive time, lunch time, and all, and all the works. Okay? So now that leaves us with 56 hours left. And what are we going to call this last bucket? Well, let's just think about what goes in this bucket. You're going you're to put church, right? You guys are going to really see some bad handwriting here. Church, family. Friends, right? Sports, kids stuff, games, hobbies, all of it goes in there, right? That last 56 hours is really where everything else falls. Now, let's, for sake of argument today, let's call that last bucket passion. These are things that you're passionate about. You're passionate about your family. You're passionate about your friends. You're passionate about your church. You're passionate about your faith. You're passionate about watching the Broncos play the Ravens today at 225. I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of TVs on later. Like these are things that we're passionate about. The question is, in this last bucket, with the time that you can control, how are you spending that time? Are you spending that time wisely or are you wasting that time? So you think for a lot of us, we, we know that we need to get better at spending this time. The question we have to ask, though, is, is, is that 56 hours being used for me to get stronger, for me to get smarter, for me to get healthier, for me to get better, for me to go grow closer to God? Or am I wasting it in neutral? And am I dating Netflix? Or am I dating Amazon Prime? And I'm not using my time well. So you, you might wonder, why does it matter? Why, why does it matter how we spend our time? Well, I, I think it, it matters because as we look at God's word, God is telling us over and over again that, that it's important to him how we spend our time. The, the Bible has a lot to say about time. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 that there is a time for everything, that there is a time for every season. King David says that we need to learn to number our days so that we can have a heart of wisdom, that we need to understand and learn to, to count time. Paul, the Apostle Paul, says that we need to, to learn to make the best use of our time because the days are evil. Because time will get taken from us. Time will get stolen from us. Just like leaving that watch on that plate, in that place, and never seeing it again, time can easily begin taken from us. So how you spend your time according to God matters. And here's why it matters. Because God wants us to learn to use our time well so that we'll be ready when he calls us to live out our purpose. See, God has called each of us to a purpose, and God wants us to be ready when it's our time to go. If you've been with us the past few weeks, we've been in a series called Bold. And we've been talking about how, the, how God calls us to live bold lives. That following Jesus was never meant to be safe. And so God calls us to live boldly. And so we've talked about what that looks like to have bold faith, 
to pray bold prayers. Last week, we looked at the story of Rahab and saw what it looked like to, to have bold actions. But today, I want us to talk about how do we live out our bold purpose. See, the reality is that every one of us have been given a purpose by God. That God is doing something in you and through you, and he's called you to something bigger than yourselves, and God has given you a purpose. David writes about this in Psalm 138, verse 8. Notice what he says. He says that the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. God has a purpose for you. God has a purpose for your kids. God has a purpose for your family and for your coworkers. But here's the problem. If we don't use our time well, if we aren't using our passion bucket well, then we just might miss God's purpose in our lives. And when God brings an opportunity to us that we can step through an open door to live out our purpose for him, we may not see that door open. So how do we get better as God's people? How do we get better at living out the purpose God has for us? Well, the story of Esther will teach us a lot about how to boldly live out the purpose that God gives us. So if you have your Bibles, let's flip to the book of Esther. And we will, we're going we're to have a, a bold attempt today to tell the whole story and work our way through the entire book of Esther in 30 minutes. So strap your seatbelt on and pray for me, please, because we have some ground to cover. But if you aren't familiar with the book of Esther, it's a fantastic, amazing story. It's an incredible story, a rags-to-riches story about uh, two Jewish people, Esther and um, her her cousin Mordecai, that God uses to do something amazing. You know, my my kids at home, we watch a lot of Disney princess movies. And, of course, I love Elsa, and and I love Tiana, and and I I love uh, Mulan and and all these movies. But they don't have anything on Esther, I'm telling you. Disney needs to take a book out of the Old Testament because the story of Esther is powerful. This story of Esther is set about 100 years after Israel, the Jews are exiled out of Jerusalem and Judea into Babylon. And at this point, we've had Ezra and Nehemiah rise up, and Ezra and Nehemiah have taken people, a remnant of the Jews, back to Jerusalem. But there's still a lot of Jews who decided to stay. You know, they grew up in Babylon. They grew up in now Persia, who's in control. And so they decided, this is our home. We're going to stay. And the setting is in the capital of Persia, the town named Susa. Somebody say Susa. Susa. So it's in the city of Susa. And the story begins with King Ahasuerus, who's also known in history as King Xerxes. So if you go back, some of you might be history majors. King Xerxes is who we're talking about here today. And so we see that the story is set with King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, decides that he's been in reign for about three years. He decides he wants to show off all of his stuff. Now, he decides he's going to bring out and he wants to have a parade and just parade out all of his belongings and all of his things. Now, I don't know about you, but if I decided to do that, I'd invite you over to my house. I'd bring out my George Brett autographed baseball, and I'd bring out my favorite guitar, and I'd buy you a sandwich and send you home, right? It'd take about 15 minutes. But for Ahasuerus and King Xerxes, it takes 180 days. Read with me. Esther Chapter 1 here. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the, uh, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he had a feast for all of his officials and servants. And the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors and the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days. For 180 days. 
So Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, for 180 days is parading out his chariots and his gold coffers and all of his, all of his favorite things. And on the last day or the last week, Ahasuerus has drank a little too much wine. And he decides, I'm going to show off my greatest possession of all, my queen. So he calls his queen, her name was Vashti, and he says, Queen Vashti, come on out and let me parade you around. And Vashti, rightfully so, says no. She's like, no way. Rightfully so. We should, we should applaud Vashti for saying no. But notice what happens. In verse 12, when she says no, the king gets mad. Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the, the, uh, the eunuchs at the king, and the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So, so now he's mad. King Xerxes is mad. He's mad at Vashti. He feels embarrassed. He's had too much to drink. We know we don't make good decisions if people have too much to drink. And so he brings in his advisors, and his advisors say to him, King, you, you can't let Vashti get away with that. If Vashti gets away with that, then all of our wives are going to quit listening to us too. Maybe they should, right? Like, it sounds like these guys aren't making very good decisions. And so the king's like, you're right. I can't let her get away with this. She's banned, banned from my presence forever. But I need a new queen. And so his advisor said, I got a great idea. Let's have a beauty pageant. And, of course, remember, King Xerxes had a little too much to drink. He's like, that's what we're going to do. And so they decide they're going to round up every beautiful unmarried woman in Susa and have a beauty pageant. So they start going around, they start finding all the, all the young, beautiful women, and they bring them in to create this beauty pageant, and this is when we meet Esther. Notice, now we're in, over to chapter 2. Notice, enter stage left, Esther and Mordecai. Chapter 2, verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai. He was bringing up Hadassah, which is Esther's Jewish name, the daughter of his uncle. For she had neither father nor mother. Esther's mom and dad had died. But Mordecai was her cousin. Notice what Mordecai did. Mordecai was a really great guy. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as her, his own daughter. So Esther's the adopted daughter, basically, of Mordecai. She's his cousin, but he is looking out for her. He is watching over her. He, he loves her. And so we see that now they're, they're having this beauty pageant. And in verse 8, when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, many women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, who was the, the, the guy that was going to put on the, the beauty pageant. Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put into custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Now, this wasn't a just kind of a beauty pageant, let's bring everybody in and we're just going to bring them in front of the king. He's going to pick his favorite. This was a serious beauty pageant. This was more than like they get on stage and tell them what they, what they feel like the future of Persia is going to be and they wear, a night, they wear a gown. And this was a year of like perfume and mascara, right? They spent a year making these, the, 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 trying to, to kind of shape and mold these women into something that the king is going to fall in love with so he could pick out his new queen. All kinds of problems with that, by the way. But we can talk about that later. We've got too much ground to cover. So now it's been 12 months uh, of this beauty treatment and they say, okay, now we're going to start bringing the ladies in in front of the king. And so the king, they would bring the ladies in in front of the king. The king would, uh, would, would, would talk with them or whatever. And then if he wanted to talk more, he would invite them back in again. Look with me to verse 17. So it was Esther's turn to go in and meet the king. And the king fell in love with Esther. Verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. 
Then the king gave her a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So Esther is named queen now and put in the high position of being the queen of Persia. Now, I want to stop there for a moment. I want you to notice something. Notice Esther and Mordecai. Esther and Mordecai are, are really two unknown people going into this story. But that God moves in Esther's life to bring her into a position of authority. Now, I want you to see what he does with Mordecai. At the very end of chapter 2, I'm not going to put the verses on the screen, but you can read in 22 and 23, Mordecai is hanging out at the king's gate. And Mordecai overhears that there are two men that are going to try to revolt against the king and kill the king. So Mordecai hears this. He tells Esther. Esther tells the king. Those two men are arrested and bad things happen. And then Mordecai is, is, is applauded. And notice this. Mordecai, a record in the book of Chronicles was written in the presence of the king. So Mordecai's name was written in the book, the king's book. Hold on to that thought. We're going to circle back to that in a minute. So now you have these two people. Esther and Mordecai, unknown, relatively unknown, Jewish in background, who were slaves in exiles, who are now living in Persia freely. And God has taken two unknown people and he's brought them into a place of prominence and he's used them in a, and put them in a very high position. See, God is setting up Esther and Mordecai to be used for his purpose when the time is right. Now, I want you to, to, to notice something about this book. This book of Esther is a really interesting book. And some of you may know this about Esther, but Esther is really interesting because nowhere in the book of Esther is any, do we see the name of God ever mentioned. Now, that should, should seem sort of strange, shouldn't it? That God's name is never mentioned in a book of the Bible in his book. Why is that? Why would God allow us to, to read a book written by an unknown author? Maybe it was Mordecai, maybe it was Nehemiah. Why would God put a book in his book that doesn't ever mention his name? It's interesting. Tim Mackey of the Bible Project says it this way. He says that it's actually a beautiful technique by the author because it's an invitation to look for God's activity in the story because this story is full of coincidences. And this book is full of iconic reversals. And it forces you to look for God's purpose in the midst of what's going on behind the scenes. And so as you and I think about how God is working in our life, and as you and I think about how God is using our time to prepare us for our purpose, I believe in the book of Esther we see three things. And the first one is this, that God moves behind the scenes to put you in position for your purpose. See, God doesn't tell Esther and Mordecai, hey, here's what I want you to do. Here, go ahead and get ready. God works through the scenes to what looks like coincidences and iconic reversals to put Esther and Mordecai in position so one day they'll be able to live out their purpose. And this is normally how God works, isn't it? How many times in your life have you seen God move through a situation, but you didn't realize it at the time? You look back later and you're like, wow, God, I, I can't believe that I missed that. Like, you, you move through that situation. You move through that relationship. You move through that interaction. And I didn't see it at the time, but wow, you've really worked through what looked like a coincidence. But really, forefront, there are no coincidences with God. What seems like a coincidence is often God just bringing things together for his purpose. I like the way that uh, John Nelson Darby says it. This is great. He says this. He says, God's ways are behind the scenes, but he moves all the scenes which he is behind. Isn't that good? 
See, God's always moving behind the scenes, but he's bringing all the pieces together to move the scenes, which he is behind. See, have you ever, have you ever like, been in a situation where you were thinking about somebody? Somebody came to your mind, and all of a sudden they called you. It ever happened to you? You ever been in a situation where you're like, man, I haven't seen, man, I haven't seen Ron in a long time, and then I go to King Supers, and guess who I see at the checkout line? Ron. And I'm like, what a coincidence, Ron. I was just thinking about you. But remember, God doesn't have coincidences. God is moving behind the scenes to put us in position for impact, to put us in position to, to live out our purpose. And so, so often, God is moving and, and interweaving things behind us that we just don't realize at the time. Because God, there are no coincidences. There's actually a theological term behind this that I think we all need to be familiar with, and it's called divine providence. Somebody say that, divine providence. All right, let's try that again. Providence. All right, that was better. Divine providence. And, and divine providence is the idea. It's, it's the, the concept that God is in complete control of all things and that through divine providence, God ensures that his purposes are fulfilled. So God governs the affair of, of people, the affair of his creation, the affair of everything through, through divine providence. And, and, he, and he works through the natural order of things. And so think about the story of Joseph. If you're familiar with Joseph in the book of Genesis, you have the, the story of this young man named Joseph. And, and Joseph, God allowed Joseph to be kidnapped by his brothers and thrown into a pit. God allowed Joseph to be sold into slavery to go to Egypt. God allowed Joseph to be falsely accused so that he would be going to prison. God allowed Joseph to sit in prison for a couple of years so he could meet the king's men and interpret their dreams. God allowed that situation to work where Joseph would then be able to interpret the dream of Pharaoh. And then God used that situation for Joseph to become prime minister over Egypt. And God used that situation so that Joseph's brothers would come down during a famine to meet Joseph, reunite the family, and bring God's people into a safe place to, to save them from hunger in the middle of a famine. God worked through that ridiculous situation providentially using hundreds, thousands of people, nature, all kinds of situations to set Joseph in place to make an impact. Joseph's purpose was revealed at the end. Joseph had no idea the entire time. God was moving behind the scenes. God works providentially in your life and mine. He's going to work providentially in the life of this church. God is moving behind the scenes. Probably my favorite verse to see how this plays out is from the book of Romans. Maybe the greatest chapter in the entire Bible, Romans chapter 8. And here's what Romans 8, 28 says. It says this. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his what? Purpose. See, God is working out together all things for good. You may be going through a hard situation and a really tough time, but God's going to work that situation out for good. Because God is moving and he has a purpose for your life. And he's going to move behind the scenes. And this is what God is doing with Esther, and this is what God is doing with Mordecai, and we're not going to see it yet. Because what we think is happening is, wow, Esther is going to be in this beautiful place, this palace. She's going to be the queen. It's going to be great. That's God's purpose for her life. But no, God's purpose was bigger than that, way bigger than that. So this is what God is doing with Esther and Mordecai. And I want you to ask the question, is this what God is doing for you? How is God moving in your life? How is God moving behind the scenes? And I want you to ask yourself, who was somebody that God recently put you in touch with? Who was somebody that you maybe recently met and you guys hit it right off? 
Who, who is, or what was the situation? Maybe it was at work. Maybe it was in a friend circle where God has now moved and opened the door and you start to see a glimpse that God is doing something behind the scenes. God wants us to start paying attention. God wants us to start looking for that, to see how he moves. Could it be that God is setting you up for a God-sized opportunity, for a God-sized purpose? God loves to move behind the scenes. So enter now Queen Esther. Esther's not queen. But we see now in chapter 3 that, God, that um, there's a man by the name of Haman who is made number two in command. Now, Haman is a lot like uh, the bad, classic bad evil guy in the Disney stories. Think of Jafar, right? Bad guy. That's Haman. When I say Haman, think of that guy, right? I'm sure he had a goatee that kind of twisted at the end and all that kind of stuff. So enter Haman. Haman is a bad guy, but the king likes him. And so the king makes him number two over his entire kingdom. And what we see is that when Haman walks around now, Haman goes out and people, people praise him and bow down to him. So one day Haman walks out and Mordecai is standing at the king's gate. Mordecai is a Jew who believes in God. Mordecai is not going to bow to Haman. Haman's mad about it. Look here at verse five. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. So Haman's mad. Haman finds out that Mordecai is a Jew, and that even makes him matter because Haman was an Agite. And an and Agagite was uh, someone who came from Canaan. And so you can probably imagine after last week's story how the Canaanites didn't like the Jews. And so he was set to kill Mordecai. But he was so mad at Mordecai, he didn't just want to kill Mordecai. He wanted to kill every Jew in Persia. So Haman goes to the king, and he says, King, there's this people that don't bow down to you, that don't respect your laws. And the king, of course, probably drinking again, gets mad. What? Who, is, who are these people? And Haman says, give me permission to set a royal decree that all of these people can be killed. And the king gives him a signet ring. I think he was playing a little loose with the controls of the kingdom. Gives him a signet ring, and boom, this edict goes out across the entire land of Persia that on a certain day, all of the Jews can be killed. And if you kill a Jew, nothing happens to you. You don't get in any trouble. Forefront. The world was trying to kill God's people well before World War II. It dates back thousands of years. And so now we see that this edict gets sent out all over the kingdom, and Mordecai gets a copy. In verse chapter 4, notice what happens. Mordecai learns what's going on, and when he had learned um, that all this had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out in the midst of the city and cried with a loud, bitter cry. And in every province, verse 3, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. And so Mordecai is distraught. Mordecai realizes that probably it was his actions that led to this uh, onslaught against all of the Jews. And so Esther is keeping contact with Mordecai while she's in the palace. So Esther sends out her attendants to go to Mordecai. And Mordecai's in sackcloth and ashes, and he's, he's looking like Gollum, right? He's just like hasn't been eaten, and he's just feeling terrible. And so Esther's like, what's going on? And Mordecai tells her what happened. And in that moment, Mordecai looks at Esther. This is all through an attendant, of course. Mordecai tells the attendant who tells Esther, look, you need to go talk to the king. And you need to tell the king that he needs to stop this because all of your family members and all of our people are going to be killed. So Esther receives this news and she gets scared because she realizes what he's asking her to do. 
And so Esther responds back to Mordecai in chapter 4, verse 10. Notice what she says. Then Esther spoke to, um, and spoke to Mordecai through her attendants, and she said this, verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's providences know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Esther's like, if I walk in and talk to the king, if he doesn't call me, I could lose my life. I, I, I could be put to death. She says, but, but everybody's going to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to see the king in 30 days. Esther's like, I haven't even talked to the king in 30 days. I can't just walk in there. If I walk in there, I'm probably going to lose my life. And we see Mordecai's response. It's one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible. Classic response. Chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Notice what Mordecai says to Esther. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Saying, when the, when the king finds out you're a Jew, you're going to die too. You're gonna, it's gonna ha- same thing's going to happen to you. For if you keep silent, verse 14, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. God providentially works. God's going to raise somebody else up. But if it's not you, then probably everybody in your house, including me, Mordecai, are going to die too. And who knows? Notice this. The end of verse 14. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. See, Mordecai says to Esther, Esther, all that has happened to you, you are now the queen. Could it be that you are in this position for such a time as this? This is the moment that God has been preparing you for. See, what we see in this story is that not only does God move behind the scenes to put us in position, but that God uses our process to prepare us for our purpose. That God is using our process to prepare us for, for our purpose. I want you to see something here. I want you to notice something about this. If we go all the way back to chapter 1, King Xerxes in the third year of his reign, when he banishes Queen Vashti. Chapter 2, Esther goes into the beauty pageant and spends a year getting Persian beautified so that she meets the king in his seventh year. Notice that, year three to year seven. How many years was that? Quick math, four. Took four years from Esther, or from king banishing Vasti to Esther meeting the king. Four years, she was in process, right? Now keep going, don't stop there. When Haman and Mordecai have their issue, and Haman issues the decree, it's the 12th year. The 12th year. So now Esther has been in process for nine years. Esther has been queen for five years. God has been at work for nine years in this situation. Esther has been in the palace for five years, God preparing her way to be used in this moment. And this is the point where Mordecai says to Esther, if you don't step up, somebody else is going to. But could God have put you in position for such a time as this? See, God uses our process to prepare us for his purpose. The palace was beautiful, but the the palace was the place of preparation. The palace was the place where God was preparing Esther for what he was going to do. See, a lot of us, we want the palace to be our purpose. We want the palace to be our purpose. We want the the good, comfortable, easy life to be our purpose. But God is saying that that good, comfortable, easy life might just be preparation for something bold and hard and difficult that God is going to call you today to do. So I think one of the things we often miss in life is that we we, we miss that, that growth doesn't come through comfort. Growth comes through challenge. Like, think back to your life. The time that you've grown the most haven't been the times when life was easy. 
The time that you've grown the most haven't been the, t- the, the times when things just all fell into place. The times that you've grown the most have been the times where you've walked through the most difficult seasons. I was listening to a, a podcast the other day with um, his Alabama strength and conditioning coach. And he was talking about Alabama football. If you guys know, Alabama football has dominated the college football ranks for the last decade. But they talked about Coach Saban. This is Nick Saban. He has um, changed the culture of Alabama football. And they talked about Coach Saban. One of the things Coach Saban always says when they're practicing, it's all about preparation. He says this. He said, we don't do it till we get it right. We do it till we don't get it wrong. And I think there's a lot of truth to that in life for us, that we have to work really hard at, being, at preparing ourselves so that we can get it right, or so, so that we get it right when the time comes. You know, there's just that concept of, of the, the fact that sometimes God has to take us through the pit to get us to the palace as he's preparing us for what his purpose is. I mean, you, you think about, you know, Joseph. He went from the pit to prison to the palace. How about King David? David went from the cave to the palace. Why did he have to go to the, the cave before the palace? Because he learned way more about leadership than he ever did in the palace, in the cave. See, God is using the challenges in our life to grow us and to strengthen us and to mold us. It's the, as the great theologian Morgan Freeman once said, challenge yourself. It's the only path which leads to growth. See, all this stuff that you've gone through, these last 18 months, this pandemic, all the stuff that you've gone through, that broken relationship, all the stuff that you've gone through overcoming addiction, all the stuff that you have gone through getting out of terrible financial debt, all of that could have been preparation that God was using for your future purpose that God's going to use in the life of someone else. So, as we think about what God is doing, as we look at how God works behind the scenes, we have to ask, God, what are you doing in my curtain situation that's preparing me for my purpose? God, what am I learning in this process that's preparing me for who you want me to be and what you want me to do? Esther was in the palace for five years. Life was good, but God was preparing her for this moment. Notice what happens. So Mordecai says to Esther, could you be in this place for such a time as this? And Esther realizes it. She sees the circumstances. She sees all the intermoving parts, and she says, you're right. So she says this in verse 16. She says, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my young woman will fast and, and as you do. Then I will go to the king. Notice, she's like, I'm not going to, she's like, I'm going to go pray and I'm going to go fast. I'm not going to pray and fast to decide if I'm going to go. God's telling me to go. I'm going to pray and fast that God will open the heart of the king when I go. Prayer changes things. So she goes and she prays and she fasts. Notice what she says at the end. She says, though it's against the law and if I perish, I perish. You see the boldness in Esther's words? I'm going to boldly step out because God is calling me to my purpose. And so notice this. Esther gets ready. They pray. She says, I'm going to be bold. And notice chapter 5, verse 2. Notice what happens. We see that Esther goes into the king. And we see that Queen Esther stands in the court. And she won the favor in his sight. God moved. The king's heart was prepared. The king sees her. And he extends the royal scepter. That was the signal that, that she could talk. And so she comes up to him, and she says to the king, she touches his scepter, and she says, she says, King Xerxes, I have a request. And the king says, I'll do anything you want. I'll get up to giving you half in my kingdom. And she says, I've got a banquet for you tomorrow. Will you come? But also invite Haman. And the king's like, sure, that's it. 
Sounds good. You're going to throw a little party for me. So the next day, they go into this banquet, and they're having great drink, and they're eating great food. And the king says to her, Esther, obviously you wanted something. What is it that you want? I'll give you half of my kingdom. And she says, you know what? What I really want is for you to come to another banquet tomorrow. It's kind of interesting. Like, did she get scared, or did she pause, or whatever? But we're going to see that God used her pause to open a door for a purpose. And so that night... The night in between banquets, the, um, Mordecai walks out. He sees, or I'm sorry, uh, Haman, Jafar, walks out. He sees Mordecai staying at the king's gate, and he's like so mad because Mordecai won't bow down at him that he goes home and he tells his wife. And Haman's wife's like, you should build some gallows and just kill him tomorrow. And Haman's like, that's a good idea. So he builds like this 75-foot-tall gallow to, to hang Mordecai on. And the next day, he's going to go in and tell the king, King, I want to do this. Well, that night, again, God moves through what seeming is coincidences and iconic reversals. That night, the king can't sleep. And so I don't know about you guys, but when you can't sleep, what do you do? You grab a book, right? It's going to put me to bed pretty quick. So the king calls to one of his advisors and says, hey, bring me the chronicles. Remember the chronicles? Bring me the chronicles. I want to read about what's going on in my kingdom because it's pretty boring. It's going to put me to sleep. So they bring the chronicles in, and guess what the king reads about that night? Mordecai. The time that Mordecai rescued and saved his life. And so the king says to his attendant, hey, do we ever do anything for Mordecai when that happened? And the attendant's like, no, I don't think we did. So the next day, the Mordecai, or Haman walks in to ask the king, hey, king, can I have permission to kill Mordecai? And guess what the king says to him? Hey, hold on, Haman. Question for you. Notice, this is really good. This is really good. Verse 6 of chapter 6. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Mordecai is feeling pretty good, right? He's popping his collar a little bit. And he's like, hey, he's talking about me. Well, what would I want done? Okay, well, I want you to put a robe on that, I've already, that you've worn. I want to get on one of your horses. And I want somebody to parade me all around the town square and say, this is the king's man. And so the king goes, man, I love that idea. Okay, here's what I want you to do. Haman, I want you to go find Mordecai. I want you to put Mordecai on the horse, and I want you to take Mordecai all around the city, make sure to get him a robe, get him something good to eat and drink, and I want you to parade him around the city and say, this is what the king does for the king's man. Oh, wait, Haman, what did you want to talk about? (laughs) So Mordecai begrudgingly has to pull, or Haman begrudgingly has to pull Mordecai around town praising him. And you can imagine this is the most uh, unenthusiastic praise ever. This is the king's man. This is the king's man. So he does this, and, and, and so Mordecai is honored. Haman is humbled. Well, they go back in for the banquet, right? It's day two of the banquet. See, God is moving through this iconic reversal, and God is moving throughout these seemingly coincidences to prepare Esther for this moment, to live out her purpose. So notice this. It's banquet number two, and Esther, um, King Haman, or the king and Haman come in. And Esther gets bold and goes for gold. Notice this, chapter 7, verses 3 to 6. And then queen, the, the king says, hey, what do you want to talk about? What do, you, what do you want? And the queen says this. Queen Esther answers, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, and I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Verse 5, then King Ahasuerus says to Esther, who did this? Who would sell my people or the people of my wife? Who is crazy enough to try to do this? And notice this. This is the moment, boldness. Esther looks at the king and says, a foe and enemy, the wicked Haman. And she points out Haman in the room. 
And in that moment, Haman was terrified because he knew what he had done. The king, I'm sure, flips his plate. He gets mad. He walks outside in the garden. He comes back in, and he finds Haman hanging on Esther, like, please, please, please. And, of course, he's hanging on the king's girl. Like, that's not cool either, right? And so he's like, grab him. And they took him, and he was hung on the gallows that were built for Mordecai. And so we see that God has moved through this situation to give Esther the boldness to prepare her to speak out and to stand up. And we see Esther goes for it all in chapter 8, verse 3. And here's what she says. She says, Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And the king says yes. And so at that point, the king issues a new royal decree. Anyone who attacks a Jew on the day of Purim, which was the day that they were going to be, it was like the purge. If you guys saw the movie The Purge, I didn't see it, but if you saw it, it's like the purge. And so it was, this is supposed to be on this day of Purim. If you attacked a Jew, the Jews could rise up and then they could actually kill your whole family, which is pretty terrible. But that was pretty much a, um, something to, to say, don't mess with the Jews, right? So we see that the day comes, the Jews rise up, the Jews succeed and prevail. And God used Esther to speak boldly, to step into her bold purpose, and to rescue her people. See, one of the things that God is telling us through this amazing story is, is that he, he works through the providence of, of, of broken people. He worked through the king, through Vashti, through Mordecai, through Haman, all to set Esther up, to boldly step into that moment and to rescue and save her people. And so as we close and as I invite the worship team back on stage, I want to end with this last, one last thought. It's this, that God's purpose for our lives is always greater than us. That, that God put, that, put Esther in this amazing position, but he did it because he, he put her in a position for something that was bigger than, than her. See, I think all of us in this room would, would, would agree and would say that we want our lives to count. That we want something that we do to count. We want our lives to, to matter. And, and so we want to say, God, how do I know when it's time? How do I know when the moment is right? How do I know when I can step out and be the person you've called me to be and to fulfill my purpose? And God says, you will know when the circumstances come together to reveal that I am calling you to do something that is bigger than you. See, God blesses us so that we can bless somebody else. We see that God promotes you so that you can promote others. God gives you influence in your, in your family or in your career or in your community, not so you can talk about how good you are, but so you can talk about how good he is. See, God's purpose for our lives is always bigger than us. And maybe right now God has been preparing you and putting you in position so right now you can step out and you can live out your purpose to share your faith with your sister, to invite your neighbor into your house for dinner and talk about how God is moving in your life. God has blessed you and promoted you and, and put you in a position financially where you can be generous and help somebody else. Maybe God has put you in a position of authority at your company so that you can step out boldly and change culture to lead to a place of health. God's purposes for our lives are always greater than us. And the thing I, I want us to recognize forefront is that God is always moving and that God is always preparing and that God is always opening doors. The question is, are we going to see it? Are we going to recognize it? 
when God moves? Are we going to spend our time wisely so we can see God's opportunities in front of us? When we started off our time today, we talked about those three buckets of time, sleep, work, and passion. How do we become people who use our time wisely for God? See, I think this is what the Bible tells us, is that we make the most of our time when we align our passion with his purpose. So what is God calling you to do? What is the passion that God has put in your heart? What is God's purpose for this church and God's purpose for our, our community? See, when we align our passion with God's purpose, it's that moment where God opens opportunities for us to be bold. Which means that for you and me, we need to stay in this word. Which means for you and me, we need to pray bold prayers. Which means for you and me, we need to serve Jesus' church. Which means for you and me, we need to be in community with other believers so we can point out how God is at work. God wants you to be bold, and he's moving and preparing you for that moment when the door opens. You know, as we close, I want you to see that God worked through this amazing story of Esther, but he uses Esther as a type to point us forward to the one that was going to come, to Jesus who would come for us and boldly step out and give his life for us and to show us that he calls us to boldly step out and give our lives for one another. So forefront, this week, look for God-sized opportunities because when you do, you're going to begin to recognize your God-sized purpose. Would you pray with me?